and raising investment, everybody thinks that that's the journey, raise investment to create a business. But like most successful businesses haven't raised any money. Like I've been on the board until recently of a company where the management team 100% owned it and they mm. sold it and they're all done very well, right? And I know somebody at the other end of the spectrum who created a business which was sold for 400 million and the founders made zero. Right? <laughs> so it's like, they made zero because they... And to kick things off, my first question I'd like to ask you is, so you, you're involved in a number of different things. Yeah. Why do you love what you do? Um, I think I feel like I'm in a fortunate position where um, I'm able to follow my interests. And I think in terms of like, it took me, it took me a while to work out where my sort of position was in the world. And I think when I was growing up and at school, despite being, you know, a straight A student, so to speak, I felt like I was a jack of all trades, master of none. And I liked lots of things, but I, I sort of envied some of the other kids who were like really passionate about one particular area. But I think over the course of my career, I realized that actually that's quite a superpower in and of itself, being able to be a master of all trades and interested in lots of things. And I think I established over time that the real crux of what I really enjoyed was trying to solve problems, like getting into the nitty gritty of sort of like big problems and trying to unpick and figure out the systemic blockages in problems and sort of unblocking them and, and, and helping things flow better. Um, and I think I'm sort of an enabler to that extent of like, you know, going into areas, trying to figure out how it works and try and figure out how to join dots, get people working together and just being utterly focused on the ultimate goal of trying to solve and improve the system. So that has been the bit that I think motivates me. And I think in terms of my journey, like after coming out of my own startup business Metail, I've subsequently just allowed myself to follow my interests and have been quite pleasantly surprised at how fun, um, motivating and interesting that has been. So I'm lots of different areas. I sit on you know, up to 10 different boards, but I somehow managed to keep all the plates spinning. That's amazing. Problem solving. That's essentially what entrepreneurship is, isn't it? Yeah. And you've co-founded Extend Ventures in 2019, was it co-founded? Yes. Oh, yes. 2020 was when the report came out. Ah. So I, I would say in 2019, I sold my company and I was at a, a conference in Greece um, for WPP. Um, it's an unconference. It's a really interesting structure where... There's a framework for the conference, which lasts over a few days, but there's no content. So all of the guests provide the content. So there's a basically an empty grid of these are the sessions that are going to be run during the day. And then it's up to you to come and basically decide, I'm going to do a session on origami, or uh, I'm going to do a session on um, uh, what I think about uh, AI. And in my case, I did a session and hosted a session on um, uh, the struggle of being a founder. Um, so that was a session to encourage other founders to, to, to join in. It was like a self-help group, if you like, um, sharing the worst experiences about it and the difficulties. Because I think often um, you are presenting an image of success as a founder and of, of, of progress. 
and it's a roller coaster ride with as many dips as there are highs and it's incumbent on founders to share the difficulties of the dips with each other so you you understand and can feel that empathy and that it's a something you'll go through and i think in in, in that session i met erica brodnock who was explaining that she felt she'd got to a point where she needed to hire a white male CEO into her business because she couldn't raise any money. And that sort of like stuck with me and we had a lot of conversations after that and we met again in the in in London and it was like there was it shouldn't need to be that way and somebody shouldn't need to feel like that. So it was a case of like what 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 was the problem here? Because she was clearly articulating that issue but you talk to investors and they would always say oh we invest in the best people so like what is going what's the disconnect um and erica at that time felt oh there's no way i'm going to raise money unless there are diverse funds to invest in diverse underrepresented overlooked founders um and so i spent a bit of time sort of like researching the space and i'd been a founder who'd raised over 25 million pounds for my company, but I raised no money from the venture funding industry in the UK. I got 80% of it from Asia. Um, and I recognize as well that I'd had a somewhat privileged career in the sense of I'd got a scholarship and I was bursary funded to an independent school. Then I went to Cambridge and I worked at some amazing places. So I'd built up a network, um, but it shouldn't be the case that if you're a founder and you've got a great business that you shouldn't be able to access the same funding channels as anyone else. So I looked at all the sort of diverse funds that had been set up in, in the interim, the likes of Impact X, et cetera, but they were all struggling to raise their target amounts. So it was like, well, there's no point us trying to create a new fund and struggle to raise the money because what we're hearing is that people are being told, come back uh, and we'll be, you know, we'll, we'll think about your second fund once you've proved success. And so they were all caught in a catch 22. But there, there were the emergence of these new types of organizations that were trying to help um, uh, black and ethnic minority founders come through. Um, but they were all emergent and it was all small scale. But there was a, a complete lack of data. Like nobody seemed to know um, how many black founders there were out there, whether they'd raised money. Um, and it felt like, well, okay, so if we were going to do something and try and generate systemic change here um the best thing we could do was generate the data and try and close the gap between the founders experience and uh the funders perception um so in this in the summer of uh 2020 um you know in the middle of covid like erica and i and a few other um, co-founders of this group and collective that we then named Extend Ventures, went out to go and get the data. So we looked at all venture funded businesses over the 10 years, 2009, 2019. Um, and then given that my startup was uh, focused very much on computer vision, machine learning, it felt like the idea of understanding ethnicity was actually a tractable problem and you could use computer vision to try and solve 80% of it and then you'd have a small enough number left to, to do the manual process of, of identification. And whilst ethnicity is a self-determined categorization, in a funding conversation, it's the perception of the person with the money 
mm. and their bias that matters. So therefore perceived ethnicity was something that we could legitimately go after and therefore determine we think this person is this ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what's going to be the likelihood of the beholder in a funding conversation. So we went out and did that and we, um, we as a voluntary group with no money, released our first report at the end of 2020, um, which very much proved that Erica's um, experience was actually reality, not the exception. So there'd been only one black woman in 10 years who'd yeah, raised yeah. over a million pounds. The statistics were startling. And I've always heard those this is, um, stats quoted quite a lot. So that the 0.24% um, yeah. gone to black founders from what, now to 2019, so the 10 years. Yeah. Then 0.02 to black women. Um, which was what, one founder you said? One founder who raised over a million, and I think there was about eight who'd raised something, right? So, 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 so the stats are startling. And then what, you and the team have released a new report, which only got what came out a couple of weeks ago, as of when we're recording this now. What's the landscape like now? Do you, has it changed? What's the, what's the state of play for? So I'd say now? that, so after we released that report, and as you say, the, the data was so stark, right? So, and actually that was, that was good because we were able just to push out the, the report with the numbers and it could basically exist in a apolitical world in the sense of like you can't argue with the quantitative analysis so there have been loads of reports previous which were more like this is somebody's experience versus somebody else's experience so you could argue with that whereas it's like this is raw numbers so you you venture fund keep saying that you invest in the best people but the reality is that you've invested in zero like let's <laughs> let's clear the decks so let's start from there it's an amnesty let's all you know try and figure out how we can do things better and i think it it landed you know better than i had hoped our goal was to basically generate a really credible report that people would cite and and util, utilize going forward and it achieved that. So there were a whole bunch of funds then who came after that point who were able to use that report to justify their um, uh, their their means of existence. So like Black Seed Ventures, likes of Cornerstone VC. So it helped basically propel them into raising funds specifically targeting um, uh, black and other uh, ethnicities. And then also at the same time, it sort of, help do the big push on bigger organizations to to do better in terms of programs and also to try and expand their funnel so a whole bunch of initiatives were kicked off off the back of it we've also then obviously since 2020 had a bit of a downturn in the economy and over overall there's been a sort of crash if you like in investment into startups over the last two years so my worry then had been you know the first thing to go in a downturn are all of the the considered to be worthy projects. So I, I was really keen to see what the data showed and whether basically there was real proper systemic and structural impetus in maintaining the initiatives that had emerged to really sort of push greater equity in terms of groups. And I think I was, in some, to some extent, pleasantly surprised. So I was expecting that we'd gone two steps forward and one step back, but actually where the data seemed, what the data seemed to suggest, it was like a very slow crawl upwards, right. but a, a sort of like stall in momentum, which with our report, hopefully we can then basically 
add impetus to then a re acceleration of new initiatives so the 0.02% number for um, uh, black uh, female founders had moved up to 0.14% I mean we're still talking small numbers right we're still talking about going from one to eight so eight in four years after only one in 10 years so that's that's a that's a change but what we need to see from here is that that you know, these people who've now raised money at the earlier stages are caught in the middle stages, get later stage funding and come out the the top as big successes. So you create a virtuous circle. And I think what we, there was a show that there'd been like a burst in the early stage, but there was still a sort of slight dip in the mid stage. So that's series A, B, C stage funding. So like by hopefully by showing this data, there's an element of like, Come on, everybody, you need to maintain these programs. You need to maintain the effort. We need to amplify the successes of the people who have been raising money and spotlight them and spotlight how incredible these founders are and that this isn't about altruism. This is about the fact that these people were just not getting uh, the their foot in the door or their, their, their seat at the table to get uh, funding that they were very much due when you talk about the momentum piece, uh, it started to remind me of the Black Lives Matter movement, where so you spoke about you released a report and then there's an initial burst of momentum and then it levels off after a while. Yeah, and it was like with the Black Lives Matter movement when after George Floyd was murdered, there's an initial burst of momentum and from corporates and whatnot, and then public consciousness again it levels out. Yeah, after a while, and then it sort of it sort of makes me think that um, you is that is that once you've you, you know we've done what you've done quick put this stuff out there but then that's only half or even like a tiny bit of the battle then it's like now pushing keep continually pushing 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 to keep it in the public consciousness or to keep it on the consciousness of these vc funds or yeah. whatnot, whatnot like this if you know what i'm saying is that something that you and your team are yeah i think so and i think that that sort of sense of like knee jerk reaction to then like stalling momentum and backlash, I think is way more um, uh, present in the US. For example, I th I remember after Black Lives Matter, there was like the US is very good at throwing money down on the table, and you suddenly saw like oh SoftBank we're launching a diversity focused fund, uh, and it's like two hundred million, and you're like wow two hundred million that sounds big right? But then when you actually do the maths, you're like. Mm, that's less than 0.1% of assets under management. So actually, if what they do off the back of creating this fund is to funnel all um, uh, black and ethnic founders into this fund instead of maintaining them within the main fund, then probably what you're going to see is that actually the proportion of funding going to black and ethnic founders goes down. Right, so it's like the the worst possible outcome could happen. And, you know, 200 million sounds like a big number, but they gave more money to somebody who was later exposed as a KKK member. So it's like this, 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 like, you have to be very careful. And I think the US is very good at throwing money to the problem, whereas actually what happened in the UK was not that. There was, there was more of a, like, okay, how can we, and, and therefore it got a bit frustrating because it felt like, change was really slow and maybe people weren't doing anything but i think there were actually a lot of people that i ended up talking to who were trying to think more intentionally about okay how can we how can we do stuff that's going to have 
long-term potential impact. And I thought it was interesting, like initiatives like um, Local Globe, Phoenix Court, they sort of committed to a blackout Tuesday once a quarter until 2030. So in their head, it was like, we have to sort of embed a whole day where we're thinking about what we doing what the initiatives that we've done holding ourselves to account and it's not and we're going to set the the end goal of this this set of initiatives far out into the future so that it keeps our feet to the fire in the long run and i think that type of like thinking has been a bit more endemic here and i i definitely see it within organizations that a lot of organizations there are a lot of um uh good people trying to do good but the, the rhetoric at a political level and what you see at the press ends up being quite culture warsy so it's like oh you know i think we saw recently for example that there was talk about the need to uh, reduce the number of employees in the civil service and there was rhetoric from particular sector of the political class who was saying oh well as part of that we're going to get rid of all the, the dni <laughs> um roles right so that 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 the war has ended up being in a, against these sort of like diversity inclusion roles across corporates and and in government um but i feel that there's a real strong it's a bit like climate change right so there's a sense that we're on a path that needs to happen and we need to keep continuing so the underlying um trajectory is going in the right way there'll be there'll be fluctuations on the top mm. but i i'm a glass half full person i like to think that the underlying is still there and we need to ensure that society as a whole cares about equity it cares about the climate it cares about these longer bigger term issues and that we don't get distracted by the the vocal minority who can fight against things um, in the interim you spoke a little bit earlier on about the at the conference and leading a session on the struggles of entrepreneurship can you talk a bit about that yeah so i'd say you know i think when you're running a company you are in it and the struggle is always about raising money trying to um, hire people trying to get product market fit and you're you're on the treadmill running the whole time and as the founder you're like the chief optimism officer you need to keep everyone up you need to present a like strong you know, happy face and an optimistic face um, and that this sort of clarity of thought that you're you're going to the promised land and uh, you know under no circumstances you're not going to achieve that um but deep within you you're also dealing with the knockbacks and it's only you that are dealing with the knockbacks and you in some i had a friend who said oh yeah your your role is to eat as she as she put it upon my french eat the shit and absorb the shit and make sure that you um uh you know protect your team and other people from the bad stuff that's happening it's you've got to absorb it and that becomes like really quite difficult and there even it's even even not the same if you're senior management in a company it's not the same as being the founder the founder you've got the full burden of basically making sure that you don't run out of money that um, your employees are paid on time um and that you you are going to get there and you have complete doubt all the way through of like are you really the one 
who can do this job? Are you just an imposter in this position? Um, is the mission really achievable at all? Um, can you really raise the money? Are you going around? Okay. So you've always got these like doubt conversations going and you put, you end up putting the company first above all else, above your health, above your family, above your existing relationships. And it can become really de like detrimental to you. And I know that certainly from my perspective, I went through like really difficult moments. I ended up having um, central serous retinopathy, which basically means I lost um, a part of my focal vision in my left eye, which was a consequence of retinal fluid leakage because of too much cortisol based on too much adrenaline. Um, I wasn't someone who was very good at having you know, my lunchtime in a certain order. If I had too many meetings to do, I would just like skip lunch, you know, carry on through the day, maybe chuck a few Haribo in my mouth to keep, keep the energy high going. And that sense of like putting yourself last just eventually takes its toll on you. And I think I'm a wartime CEO and I enjoy it, but I effectively got addicted to adrenaline. And basically you're just flooding your body with toxins 24 seven and staying in a fight and flight mode, which is not what you're set up to do. So invariably all founders go through like intense burnout, intense like physical manifestations of um, uh, stress um, coming out of, I, I've got I, you know, my focal vision back now, but coming out of them running Metail for 11 years I was think I was in denial at the end. I was probably taking 30 ibuprofen a month to get through the month. Mm. Um, and then a year after being out, I, I was intending to go back into start something new, but I got struck with terrible headaches. I couldn't get out of bed for 10 days. The only thing that worked would be to blockers and they massively reduced my energy levels um, to about 70%, which is lower than you can push the boulder up the hill. Um, and so like, you know, the body keeps the score. And I think this sense of we're all in this really difficult, highly stressed situations as founders. And if we don't share how difficult it is with each other, that adds to the stress because we think it's only us and we're in this terrible, difficult situations because we're bad. And it's like, it's not that you're bad. It's just, that's what happens. That's the, the, the stress of potentially running out of money happens to everybody and everybody goes through it. The, the stress of like, does the product work happens to everyone. The stress of paying the bills happens to everyone. Um, and there's a great, um, uh, uh, it's almost like poetic piece that was written by Ben Horowitz. who's part of Andreessen Horowitz, like the biggest, one of the biggest VCs in, in the world. Yeah. And it's called the struggle. And it's about the fact that food loses its taste and um everybody you know you think you're bad at your job and you think everybody else thinks that you're bad at the job and you th and you know they're right and this whole problem of the 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 roller coaster ride that is the struggle but at the same time and as difficult as it's been i don't think i wouldn't have done it you know i think it, explaining it to my younger self might have put me off but I'm really glad I went on the journey and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I love it and I'm addicted to it and I can't wait to start another business again at some point in the future. The idea has just got to be big enough. And if the idea is big enough, 
that means the stress is also going to be at that level. I've got a couple of follow-up questions from that. But the first thing I want to ask is about the balance, this life, work-life balance. If it doesn't sound like you had too much of a work-life balance at that point in time, and looking at you now, uh, it seems like you're a lot more relaxed. I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, you're, you've got more, probably got more time for your family. You drop your children off to school, maybe yeah. take your kids to do some stuff on Saturdays and all that kind of stuff as well. You've got a lot more time now. And whilst you're running me tell you still had the family then. And I mean, how did you, did you, did you have a balance? Were you able to strike any sort of a balance when you're running your business full time or? I think it's, it's, I think I met once listened to a guy. And he said that balance isn't a real thing. It's more like harmony. And the way he p pitched it was harmony. And I, I think like that word resonated with me like better. Because I think it's this sense of like, can your home life support actively support your work life and your work life support your home life? And understand that they're like everything goes in like waves. So like when it when you're all on at work because you need to achieve this funding round and you need to get something or you need to get a deal closed, there is no way that you can have a fully like balanced situation because it's like you have to be all on. But can your home life support that and can it work together? And I think like if there was one thing that I was like at least grateful for was that my work was within walking distance of home and I, I i wanted that to be the case always so there was an element of like i could always dash home if needed be or like certainly in the mornings i could do the morning run and then i wouldn't be able to do the pickup but i could do get home and often i'll get home with my eldest was in in bed but i'd like you know go in and be the annoying parent who then <laughs> has kept the daughter up for another 30 minutes but there was that certainly with with my first child there was i i wasn't around a lot like i think there was one year probably when my she was two where i was in hong kong eight times in that year and that was only one of the destinations i was in and so i was i think i was traveling like every two weeks and i was permanently jet lagged so i was even when i was home I was not home in the sense of I was exhausted. I was sleeping at funny hours. I was too tired. I wasn't. I wasn't pulling my weight, and the stress on the fa on the family situation was intense. Um, and I think I tried. I would try and have sort of some type of like rules. Like I tried not to work Saturdays. I would work on Sunday pre preparing for Monday, but I try at least to have Saturday as a break day and then try and do stuff. Um, and I think I was very fortunate to have a very supportive wife during those years, but there was a massive strain on our relationship, like undeniably. Um, and that could easily have gone pop. And I know several other founders where it has done because, um, you know, the difficult thing is that you can always try and make promises to your family life but if things are happening which are existential in your work life you have to then break your family promises because you're like oh i've got i've got i've got to do that sorry i can't come i can't come to this family event i can't do this thing um and trying to figure out or make that understood is the hard bit and then i think if you like i sold my company in 2019 i was clean out of the business um 
And I feel very grateful that I was in the sense of then two months later, my father-in-law died and COVID started. My wife was in quite a big job. So it was like, well, I can finally pay down some of the debt that I've built up over 11 years. It's like, I'll do the homeschooling, you know, I'll keep the home together. Um, and I had originally planned six months off and then start something. And it was like, no, I'm not going to start something. It's like, I owe you. Um, so from that harmony perspective, it's that thing of like the, the push and pull, but it was like in this period, I'm able to do that. And I think in some respects, probably my body in terms of keeping the score has sort of like stopped me from going straight back in, which then in that moment, then it's like, well, then I should like maximize my family time and maximize that effort and be there. And because they will suddenly become teenagers and not want to have anything to do with me. <laughs> and it's like this summer, I basically worked it out with my eldest who's 10. It was like, this is probably pe my peak time with you because from next year, you're going to be going to school mostly by yourself. You're going to want to start hanging out with your friends and you're going to want to hang out more and more with your friends over the next period. So my hours with you mm. are going to shrink and shrink. So it's like, right, I'm going to like understand it and really sort of lean into it. So I, I did the whole summer with my, my two girls and it's like, I'm grateful for the fact that I ran a startup, which has given me then the opportunity to lean in and do that with them. And now as I, as I'm not running a startup, I'm doing lots of different things. I can fit the lots of different things around my family so that they work around my family now. Um, which is great, which is which is great for me. But I still have this yearning desire to build again. And then it's like, when will I build again? Will I wait maybe until my youngest is in secondary school? And then because they'll be moving away from us, I'll, I'll then capture more and more of my evening time and won't have to be thinking about childcare and so on and so forth. So, you we'll mentioned on, with regards to building again. So you said that you're likely you're gonna go back into building something, but the idea has to be big enough. Yeah. Where do you, how do you get your ideas? So for example, if we look at Meetel, where did the idea for that come from? Was it like a personal something or was it just you went and done the research and found, all right, there's a problem here, let me start something up? So it's like a combination of three things, really. So like at my last company, I built the casino division for a, a gaming gambling company and ended up sort of taking something from zero to 70% of the UK market and taking it international and running all gaming product development across 40,000 machines in the UK. And previous to that experience, I'd been more of like a strategy guy, a clever guy working with senior management. So that experience had taught me that I could do the whole concept through to scaled international rollout and manage big teams of people, including lots of people older than me. So it was like, right, I'd got that tick experience box. I know I can do that. I know I can generate wealth for other people. So now I'm ready to do my own thing. Um, and then I, with some friends, we set up this Monday night club, which was like, once a month or, or sometimes more regularly we'd meet up and bounce ideas off each other and like Mito only came a year in to that process so it was a year long like oh this idea is not good enough that idea is not good enough and it came about through a combination of two things one was like my wife complaining about the whole buying stuff and figuring out if they fit in store and it not being any better online and i'd nearly joined a company called boo.com in 99 that had raised 130 million plus i think and had spent it all in 18 months and in fact my ceo at the time had 
was the head of business development at boo.com and you know there's a great book called boohoo which is about that time so that was the internet and it was like the poster child of ideas being too early they'd tried everything but it's way too early the internet wasn't really ready um and then I, so that that was a big idea that's one of those like toothbrush test ideas um so i don't know if you like larry page Sergey brin mm-hmm. with google like they're only interested in ideas that you basically think about or do twice a day because then they're big enough so it was like what what i wanted to work on that type of an idea um and then the other side to that in terms of then making me think this was something to go after was I um, was in the process of trying to create the world's first live blackjack and baccarat game. Um, So I wanted to use cameras to recognize cards as they're being dealt live in a casino and then build a gaming engine off the back of it. Um, And I was in Hong Kong, I'd been to Macau and I'd seen baccarat being played. I was like, oh, this would work so well for that game. And then I just was Googling leading expert computer vision um, in my hotel room and a, the f- number one hit, so I didn't get very far, just one Google hit, was a professor at Cambridge University. Um, and I'd gone to Cambridge and it had his telephone number and I just picked up the hotel phone. I hadn't even checked what time of day it was back in UK. <laughs> and I've never called from a hotel phone before. And I just dialed straight up and I got hold of him first time. And I said, oh, and this guy was Professor Roberto Cipolla. And I said, look, I want to build this gaming engine using you know, cameras. How easy do you think it would be? And he said, yeah, no problem. Come visit me. <laughs> so then on my return back to the UK, I went to visit him. He showed me a lot of his research work, including going from uh, photos of antique Gormley statues to um, accurate representations of those statues. Um, and that was, I thought that was interesting. And then I commissioned one of his ex-PhD students to work and build a proof of concept of the um, blackjack game and the the um, efficacy of it like really opened my eyes to computer vision basically being this new cutting edge technology that could achieve a lot of things and i thought that trying to solve the online clothing fit problem through uh computer vision was going to be the big jump to solve that in the way that boo.com were way too early and other people had tried over the um, previous decade so i felt this was going to be it because i I certainly also felt that with the big toothbrush test problems if you were going to compete as a uk company versus a us company you needed to have cutting edge ip um, because the us company would always raise 10 times more than you and i thought computer vision was it we in cambridge we had the number like number one um, R&D research center and if i could convince this ex phd student duncan to come join me this was going to be worth going after. Um, so that's how that idea came about. Um, and, at the, and at the end of 2007, I also thought now was the right time because my company was about to be bought. Mm. Um, so my bosses were going to become wealthy. Two of them had committed to supporting me and potentially investing me and I was going to make some options. But they were going to be bought by Icelandic banks and this is 2007. So as, as we then know, yeah. the financial <laughs> crisis then and like the Icelandic banks collapsed and the day before the deal was going to close it it completely collapsed but I thought the idea was big enough and I was crazy enough to quit my job anyway without any prospect of funding (laughs) and a quite a big mortgage at the time and just go for it so January 1st I sort of like started writing my business plan in my 
my bedroom. And, <laughs> you quit and before you wrote the business plan. <laughs> yeah, I quit. I was <laughs> wow. like, right, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm out. Uh, the one thing, smart thing I'd done was I'd got commitment to carry on doing some consulting for my old company right. for five months. Um, and then I worked out because I had a big mortgage at the time. I got a lodger in. And then at six months later, my now wife moved in. Um, and uh, because the world was collapsing, interest rates started collapsing. So my my mortgage, thankfully, and I'd, <laughs> I was in a remortgage position, thankfully started to drive down uh, considerably. And then I worked out how to survive on 600 quid a month, mm. cycling everywhere, you know, baked beans and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I got lots of favors. So um, got lots of favors. And then I get, did get somebody interested in investing and it, but they wanted horrible terms. But the fact that they were interested in investing, having done the business plan and put together a deck, I knew that I was onto something and that I would be able to make something happen. Wow. Um, business, I feel like there's a lot of people that have a lot of very great, like really, really good ideas. And you probably know personally, I've heard of a lot of people with really good, really, really good ideas, but their businesses haven't taken off. Yeah. Um, maybe the execution wasn't good or team wasn't good. It could be a number of different things. In with you and Mito, what do you think made Mito's, I mean, I've probably done a number of different things, but if you could pinpoint it down to maybe some key um, one, two, three different factors, what do you think made it as successful as it was? So, I mean, and in terms of successful, I still think we failed, right? I ended up making some money, but I didn't achieve my ultimate mission. And well, I was like, ultimate, ultimate, mission. ultimate vision and mission was to create the tool that was going to be used by all clothing retailers. So I would solve my wife's problem of like mm. being able to buy stuff online and, and see how they fit. Whereas I ended up being bought by a clothing manufacturer. So it's my tech is being used in the back end and it's more research hub for that company so there's no front end use so i i failed right so my wife is not using my product every day <laughs> to buy clothes so it's a failure um but i i would say like ultimately in terms of like in ideas businesses and investment if if i always knew that my idea was going to be really ip heavy and need a lot of r d so therefore we would need to raise money and investment and i think like one of the big important things at the beginning of your journey um and it's quite a it's quite a hard thing is that you sort of really have to have some idea of the end point when you start and and what you what you want in that end point um because i and i think that why that's important is because because there's been so much talk and there's so much mind share in terms of what businesses are um, related to like venture funding and raising investment. Everybody thinks that that's the journey, raise investment to create a business. But like most successful businesses haven't raised any money, right? They, they've got a great idea, they're sales funded, and therefore these people end up owning the business 100%. Like I've been on the board until recently of a company where the management team 100% owned it and they mm. sold it and they're all done very well, right? And I know somebody at the other end of the spectrum who created a business which was sold for 400 million and the founders made zero. Right? <laughs> so it's like, it made zero because they ended up raising and raising and raising and you start to raise big sums of money where these people have got 
massive um, terms, preference terms, and and it, the US legislation changed, which meant that the valuation suddenly dropped in the business. The big investor got the heebie-jeebies and just sold the, and was able to sell the company um, for their money back, which left nothing left for the founders. Oh wow! Right, so that's that's terrible, right? Whereas these guys, other guys, sold a business for in the tens and all very nicely wealthy in a lovely position so like and they wholly own that business and they wholly own the destiny of the business and could make those choices so i think when you when you're starting you need to think and we ended up doing that with metail of asking everyone and how we built our values of like what there are three core questions like what motivates you in life what motivates you about this idea and when the idea is all said and done what do you want to achieve at the end of it i think those are the the cool things because then it's like then you understand actually does money matter does the mission matter and like what would you be happy with at the end and then you can set the trajectory of the journey because like if you want to raise venture money you have to grow like a almost vertical curve like exceptionally hard and for most businesses growing like that will destroy them when they could have been a very uh, successful lifestyle business with better harmony with family like mm-hmm. um and uh, less stress and churn a huge amount of cash back to the founders and grow at this curve right so there's there's a difference like what do you want what do you want to want to do and then fundamentally when if if it's a, a business where you're raising money the three core things that people are looking for they're looking for the quality of the team like why you why are you uniquely positioned to solve this problem and invariably that should be an indication of like you you have worked in the space for a long time you understand it inside out you have through that understood a key insight into where there's a gap to go for or you have particular relationships commercial relationships that you can call on to basically get your first customers and pull them in they need or you have particular skills like from a computer vision standpoint in terms of generating the ip so there needs to be something which is like from an investor perspective de-risks it and increases your chance of success then ultimately a growing market you you want to be attacking a growing market because that means in a growing market you can make more mistakes and you can still be successful i think one of the difficulties with retail actually was that clothing retail was not a growing market in the uk so hence why we end up getting pulled to the emerging markets because that's where the markets were growing whereas in the uk when we were trying to work with customers it almost felt like we had to be a, v- a vc because the clothing companies were going bust or the the stakeholder we dealt with had gone within six months and so it was it was just really difficult whereas you want to go growing market it means that sometimes you can't really tell it is are they growing because of your product or just because the whole space is growing um and then the final final pit is do you have a defendable position so this comes back to the like why you do you are you creating some form of defendable ip or are you creating some form of position that will protect you and your company and allow you more room to be successful um and ultimately like the first idea is that the vision is what somebody needs to connect with but if you have these other three things they're about de-risking the business and being able to see whether you've got a stronger chance of success or not and i think with me it was a case of like i built something i'd worked for five startups before starting my own i'd seen lots of mistakes um on other people's money and been 
in the room as people were making decisions. So I understood that. And then I got like Duncan as a co-founder who was like PhD, computer vision, was a co-author of a lot of the Xbox Connect patent. So somebody who had that necessary skill set. Um, and then I, f- I felt like, you know, the, the growth of online was that growing market and we would be growing this core IP that would lock in the value to the company. So we were, we were building like tangible assets within the organization. When you talk about the, the why me or why you piece, or what makes you uniquely placed as opposed to deliver on whatever business you're running. So with you yourself, one of the things before you started your own business, you was had experience um, delivering a product at scale. Yeah. And then you was able to take that experience and then utilize it in your own business as well. When you we, when we talk about delivering that, creating a product or service or whatever it is and wanting to deliver that at scale, um, and I know it can be nuanced depending on the industry, the product, etc. But is there anything that, that how, basically, how, how does a founder do something like that? And it, I think it's really hard. And I think if I go even further back from that, I would say that I'm someone who has that like never say die attitude and resilience. And I'm, I'm, if I'm doing something, I'm going to do it. And I would say a lot of my early investors, they were like, we're investing in you because, well, we think this is a high risk space that you're in, but we know that you will do everything within your power to try and make it a success. So if it isn't a success, it's not, it was, wouldn't have been your fault. The market could have moved or the market might not be ready for it. Um, and I think like that sort of building that reputation over time was something that I'd built through just like my, through school, through university, it was like this never say die attitude. And I was, both my parents were immigrants to this country and I didn't have a network and I always felt that network was like a dirty word, but I built a network through working at lots of different places of people who respected me and, um, what I'd done and like, I built like my own network, my own personal network. And certainly in terms of reputation, like uh, inspired, that reputation was built on like, like threading the eye of the needle. So like when I joined that company, the project I joined to do is like build, do a consultancy project for Gala Group, which was to, um, get them on board with this concept of open broadband network transformation of their entire business. And there was a consultant leading that project and within a few weeks he left. So then I was running the project and I built and wrote within a couple of months, a hundred page Bible for that company on how to transform their business. It was like mega, mega consultancy delivery. And then the company said, right. And they, they bought it. And then they said, right, you're now going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, okay. So that was like, okay, I've been the strategy guy in the room. I've now been told to go out of the room make, and deliver something to earn my right back into the room. And it started with this casino project and casino product. And we did loads of testing. We put it into the casino and then it was like, and we had to hit milestones. We had to hit like 99% uptime. We had to hit all these success criteria for the project to then succeed. And it would, it was a 2 million pound project that they were then signed off on. And that would have made everyone their bonus. So it was like in the whole company, right? So this had to succeed. 
And within like a few days, it was clear that there were loads of bugs in, and problems with the product. And it was like, crap, what are we going to do? And for, over the course of the next two weeks, I did 100 hour weeks. I was in the casino every hour. It was open, go home, uh, sleep for two hours, then get to work, figuring out how to basically solve the bugs in the system. Uh, there was one night, I think one of the core bugs was that uh, there was a memory leak in the server for this server-based game, which meant that at a certain point that you could bet on an event that already happened because it would slow down, it would degrade and slow down. So I remember I was watching in a casino the, the, the performance of every spin from midnight. And then at 4 a.m., finally, it was like, right, it's degrading. Oh, I've packed casino, 700 people, then going around saying stop and getting all the dealers to stop go down to the server room, reboot the server, continue, so that we could make we could make sure that we hit our uptime. Um, and I got my team to, we were on rotation, like every hour in the casino, and then trying to figure out how to solve these problems in the background, which we managed to do. But I nearly lost it one weekend, because it was like we didn't have the developers working the weekend. I was like, they need to work the weekend. We are in so much difficulty here. Um, and we got through it like out the other side and our machines ended up taking twice as much money as every other machine in the casino that casino ended up making their bonus for the year and they became our best advocates but i went through a period where like because the casinos knew that i could fix problems and solve problems they would call me any hour like three in the morning four in the morning five in the morning six in the morning um and i would wake up in the middle of the night to clear down emails so that i didn't wake up with 80 emails and it was like a really like difficult period. And then when it got to like my first holiday, I was like, I'm going to the jungle of Borneo because I know that I won't be able to be contacted. <laughs> so I went trek and I hate beasties and Borneo has got the biggest beasties of every kind in the world. So I went trekking for 11 days through the jungle in Borneo just so that I couldn't be contacted um, by work to try and de-stress. De and there was one point in that 11 days where it was a three hour trek up to the to above the canopy where I could send a text message to say I'm okay um <laughs> but the you know ended up getting out of that and then taking that broken product from nothing to then 70% of the UK boom done and that was just for you sheer persistence and resilience and uh, brute force will to make that happen and it's that that you need for startups because it's that thing of like there are so many hurdles and obstacles that get thrown at you and you need and it's like the adaptability of figuring out ways to try and solve them and and pull rabbits out of hats and I think I was pulling rabbits out of hats for 11 years and then I was like, I've got no more rabbits to pull. <laughs> so you feel like that's the most important trait for a founder, that persistence? I think so. And you need to basically, persistence, but also trying to understand how to work smarter, not harder. I think often actually a problem I do see with a lot of first time founders is that they think that they have to solve every problem themselves. And actually like that's where my time building up a network of people at loads of other different companies and that resourcefulness was super helpful for me because it was like in any scrape, I sort of had, oh, maybe I can ask this person, da, 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 like figure out a way to short circuit trying to find a solution. And it's not about trying to reinvent the wheel. 
yourself because if you try and reinvent every wheel yourself you go too slowly actually and you need to work out how do you involve people in your problems and how can you be vulnerable to enable that to happen i think a lot of first-time founders are a bit worried of like i can't show weakness if, if mm-hmm. i can't do it myself that's weakness and it's like no it's not weakness because mm-hmm. second-time founders the great thing about them when you talk to them they're like they don't focus on how great they are they focus on here are the three problems and reasons why you shouldn't invest in me i'm trying to figure out how to solve them and like that's where i want help right so they're very like, they're only focusing on these are the three core problems. If we solve them, poof, we're away, but we might not be able to solve them. In your life, in your career, in your entrepreneurial life, you sound like you've worked very hard as an understatement. Well, sleeping a couple hours a night, off, up until 4 a.m. watching, waiting to see when they think the grades, and then, you know, entrepreneurial endeavor, just really putting in a shift for years on years on years. And you said that you want to do it again. Why is that? Well, I think I think I'm just, I think there's nothing better than trying to solve a big problem with an amazing group of people. And I think I get my energy from people and like solving things. That's where I get my energy. And I think I'm a one, I'm one zero, like I'm all on or I'm completely off. So in my downtime, it'd be like, I'm in front of the sofa watching. Like I love film and TV. I'll be watching something and I'm just like completely deflated. I don't have a middle bit. I don't have like hobbies of drawing or, um, and it, I even find reading quite difficult, like certainly when I was working because of that like intense need and addiction to stimuli and trying to solve something. I'm, I'm a wartime CEO, I think. I'm like, throw things at me. That's like great. It's like peacetime, I'm bored. And I think I, I'm inherently bored and lazy, actually. And I think through being quite a bored and lazy person, I'm always looking for the fastest route to solve a problem, um, which I think is a useful thing, because then it's like, well, this thing takes too long. How do I solve it? That's what creates that sort of desire to innovate and, and find different ways of trying to solve things. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, we only get one life. Um, and I think certainly I was fortunate to um, be given an opportunity to go to an amazing school and get a great education. I was bursary funded, I got a scholarship and my sister in contrast went to a comprehensive, didn't do A-levels, didn't go to university. So I was, I was set on a different path and I feel a responsibility to make the most and best out of the education I was given um, and I, and I enjoy it. So, and I, I think, and I sort of work by this notion of like, we, we as human beings ha- do have agency, like we, we do have the ability to shape the world around us. And I, no matter how hairy and scary the problem, I, if I'm interested in it, I want to go out and try and solve it and move the needle on it. And I think we can, um, and it is always possible. So, you know, that's, that's what has led me to do things like the labor startup funding review of like, you know, again, post the extend ventures thing. It's like, well, I think there's a bigger systemic problem in there's not enough money in our UK ecosystem to compete with some of the other countries around the world, like the U S and some of our big companies aren't being funded well enough and we're not producing the giants that we used to. So when I left university, the UK had the biggest company in the world in Vodafone. 
Um, we're far off that now. So it's like, how do we, how can, how's the system focused today and how can we improve that? Um, and I ended up pushing and I was a key advocate on pension reform. And that's what I've been able to do and make that a central plank of Labour Party's um, policy um, going into the next election. So hopefully I can have some impact on a systemic change that can basically help uh, founders coming behind me. And also, like if you have pension reform, we all put money into pensions. So de facto, where that then money trickles down needs to be as diverse as the money going into those pensions. So that should lead to a more equitable um, funding ecosystem thereafter. That's amazing. I feel like I've learned a hell of a lot from you today, Tom. Before we wrap up, have you got any final words or um, any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, I would just say like, so I, in, in terms of my career, I think the big thing for me has been having started with no network, like networking is, is hugely important. And I think, um, getting a way of doing that and getting into some sort of flow and uh, a way that works for you, I think is, is something to really focus on. Like the rule that I have for networking is that once I've had two interesting conversations, I can leave. So I've set myself the bar to leave a situation because it's, it's not fun sort of sometimes, you know, going into a room full of people you don't know. Uh, it's quite intimidating. And those two conversations can be with bar staff. It's just, they've just got to be interesting. They've just got to be where you get eye contact and you connect with somebody and you, and you go one step beyond small talk. Cause I think if you have an interesting conversation, you remember them and they will remember you. Whereas if you go into networking where you're trying to find the most important person in the room or the person directly connected to what you do, the conversation is stilted they won't remember the conversation, they won't remember your face and it, it sort of disintegrates. Whereas I think a lot of the times through my career, amazing moments or lucky moments have come off the back of some form of like random network. So I think there was one time I went to a networking event, met someone, she happened to work in the fashion space, had a really great chat with her. In the background, she ended up mentioning me to um, the guy who was the editor of Drapers, which was the fashion um, uh, magazine, sort of industry magazine. Um, and then he mentioned us to a guy called Peter Williams, who had been the CEO of Selfridges, who was on the board of ASOS, who then mentioned us in a board meeting, um, which then led to the product director getting in touch with me. This is like six months later wow. in the background, right? And then we, they ended up being our sort of first commercial like partner that we were working with. So, and that was all the off the back of one wow. initial just network chat. Um, and a lot of times it's about like the harder you work and the more you put yourself in the position for a lucky thing to happen to you, the more likely a lucky thing will happen to you. That's great. Thank you very much for coming to the podcast, Tom. Really, really appreciate it. A yeah, million pleasure. gems, a million different takeaways to take away from this conversation today. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices. We had Tom Adiula on the podcast. And for now, we're out.